0: This is FemPower Power Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, Starts now. When it comes to women's health, data point after data point shows that women spend years grinning and bearing it, or visiting doctor after doctor seeking answers, whether it be a diagnosis or treatment. Given the limited data available on women's health and the lack of education we have about our own bodies, it is no wonder this is the case. Welcome to the FemPower Health Podcast, which aims to change this narrative. I'm Georgie Kovacs, your host. I'm sharing with you what I wish I had known in my 10-year fertility journey and continue to learn today. And it is my belief that these learnings translate to all women's health topics. So listen, learn, and share. In today's episode, we speak with world-renowned endometriosis surgeon, Dr. Tamar Sechkin, Endometriosis affects at least one in 10 women, but it's not researched enough, and there are few true experts in the field globally. So what is a woman to do in this impossible situation? Dr. Sechkin gets honest about endometriosis, its difficulties, why women need to take charge, and how they can do so. His passion to help women is clear. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sechkin. Hi, Dr. Sechkin. It's so nice to have you on the podcast today. Hi,
1: I'm pleased to see you, thank you.
0: Dr. Sushkin. tell us about your background before we start diving into endometriosis.
1: I'm an OBGYN, obviously, that deals with uh, female conditions, surgeon, gynecological surgeon. And I've been in professionally in practice more than thir- almost 35 years now. So that ex- excludes my exposure to OBGYN business during medical school or extern uh, internship and everything. But even in medical school, I was in OBGYN ward since the third year or second year of my medical school. So I'm very much, all my life is spent around that Focusing in that area. I'm in private practice. I'm also uh, a faculty at Zucker School of Medicine. Uh, That is uh, Hasra. I'm an associate professor of OBGYN. I perform exclusively my interests as endometriosis. I almost more than 25 years right now, I'm exclusively focused on this area. It has been a passion, obsession, addiction to this disease Due to its uh, challenge and its um, being so complex, it was something like calling and inviting me to battle this along with the patient. Gradually increasing your ability to win more battles with the patient's help, you kind of feel like you can serve these waters. It's very exciting field to be in, actually. There's no cookbook recipe for an outcome of a good dish here every endometriosis is different, every patient is different. Patient is different, their disease is separately different. So there's a difference between the two concepts and and you're a surgeon and you you do the best you can. So my background is, as I said, I'm a gynecological surgeon who specializes in endometriosis surgery.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I, I must disclose to the audience why I wanted to interview you. So I came to you after a three-year journey of being told I had unexplained infertility. And the late Dr. Braverman did tests on me and he said, I think you have silent endometriosis because I had no symptoms. And he said, the only way to know if you have this, this is back in 2014. So the only way to actually know if you have this is to have the laparoscopic surgery. And he said- you go to Dr. Sechkin. And so I came to you and you performed the surgery. And after many, many years of not even a chemical pregnancy, I got pregnant at the first IVF after. So I give you huge credit but I think also why I wanted to talk to you is not just because thank you for giving me my child, but with the with uh, Dr. Braverman, of course, but also, and by the way, that could come across very odd. So thank you for enabling me to get pregnant so that I can have my child. <laughs> but also, I went to the Endometriosis Foundation of America conference, the 10-year anniversary in 2019, and the doctors that you brought together at that conference, it was just absolutely amazing to both have a day where the doctors all got to talk and then the patients got to hear the specialists as well. And it became clear there that there's only a handful of experts in the world who know endometriosis. And because of the training in medical school, a lot of the experts are self-taught. And You know, since this is such a complex disease, I thought, why not have someone who clearly understands this, already works with the experts around the world, and really help women understand more about the disease so that they know what to do. So thank you for making time with the overzooming during COVID and your busy surgery schedule to be here and help educate the women. So let's just start with the basics, because since you are the surgeon, I definitely want to make sure that we dive into that. But just for those who are still getting to know endometriosis, maybe you could just briefly describe the disease and the complexity behind it.
1: So the question I want to repeat, what is my take on endometriosis? What is endometriosis to Dr. Setchkin? I think that is an important concept because, as you know, I, I thought there was a need to educate people how diverse perception of endometriosis was, particularly among so-called experts. In my first foundation meeting, that was 2009, I think, I named the meeting from stem cell to excision surgery. <laughs> and that was it, really. That was almost 12, 11 years ago. Nobody talked about stem cell and endometriosis at that moment. Nobody talked about excision surgery much at that, but. I brought two end of the most sophisticated, sharp aspect of endometriosis from the concept to the treatment together. And I called this wonderful lady from uh, Monash University, Carolyn Gargett, who wrote so much about stem cell origin of endometriosis. And, and I, in that meeting, I also mentioned about the excision surgery, the, what it means. So two things we probably will talk again today. To what degree we made that, that message across the, the airwaves and the endometriosis community is today, it's evident. Endometriosis itself is, a, is, a, is an inflammation that is driven by estrogen sensitivity of the cells. And if these cells happen to be the cells of the endometrium that causes monthly periods, and it's located outside the uterus, guess what? It is monthly, there's a stimulation of these cells outside the uterus and that monthly stimulation causes mini micro periods, so-called, within the body that does not escape. That micro periods, small periods, mini periods that doesn't escape eventually causes inflammation because body wants to kick them out or eat them up and cannot have enough power to eat them up but starts shooting them with, with uh, inflammatory, uh, inflammatory chemicals and bullets, let's say, How, and then that leaves the residue, war zone, which is called inflammatory war zone with collagen and fibrosis and more development of these tissues obviously progress. And these fibrosis eventually, every time there's fibrosis, there's nerve tissue around. New blood vessel formation, the inflammation. So these nerves get trapped within the inflammation, and even a little lesion becomes a big source of pain. So, bottom line is we, we brought this concept of inflammation, and years later, people start talking about endometriosis inflammation. Everybody defined endometriosis, as you can tell. The definition of endometriosis is simple presence of endometrial glands and stroma, endometrial cells outside the uterine cavity, that is not enough. Presence of them with inflammation is what really causes the symptoms. So without inflammation, defining endometriosis just cells out of the uterus is is not adequate definition. It is the inflammation that is taken care of or excised along with the glands that you see that creates the better treatment, an ultimate treatment, actually, that leads to tissue diagnosis and everything else. We may talk later, but it is the inflammation. And how do I am so obsessed with this? In my background, you asked. I mean, I asked the same question. Many times I don't have the right answer, but overall I really lean back to my internship years. I did work a lot at burn units. Mm-hmm. I have a surgical background. I did a general surgery residency very short time, but also I did. Very, I was exposed to very different aspects of medicine. Like I did a little bit of vascular and breast surgery, but one of the most impactful, apart from general, uh, apart from all surgical exposure I had, was burn. I worked at burn units. Burn is the ultimate, ultimate uh, example of how body responds to. Inflammation, how uh, wounds get healed. And if you don't, and it's really treated by debridement, cleaning, like excision. You clean everything and the body gets to And guess what? There is nothing in the world more painful than than burn pain. And these patients, most of them, massive burn patients, usually die. But you do your best to save them. I mean, I really worked in extreme burn conditions. So I saw how powerful, how painful those Patients were so. I do understand to a degree, even though as a man gynecologist, we witness few girl ladies with with pain. But I I do know what pain is from that angle of exposing to that group of people. I mean, I really you can really the empathy has has deep deep roots in my upbringing. You ask me so slowly; it's coming from different angles. So. So inflammation and getting rid of inflammation, understanding inflammation is important because if you do not understand the disease, you cannot treat it. Even though we don't know how the disease formats, how does it start, but overall recognizing the tissue with problem and getting rid of it is is the key. And inflammation is formats in different way. Visual, uh, Visual recognition is different. It's not really pigmented black and black lesions or cherry-colored lesion or off-red colors that you see. Many of the endolesions are not that color. They are white. <laughs> they are uh, on, and under bright light they are not easily detectable many times. So we'll get to that. There's more than you see actually. That's why many times endometriosis patients do not get treated adequately. And similarly, when it comes to fertility issue, endopatients patients really go fall through the track, crack, of, uh, cracks of the fertility s- treatment structure based on IVF, ovarian stimulation, all these wild things that happen there, and we may get to that later, I guess. So endometriosis is a estrogen sensitive inflammation that's characterized by by significant painful periods, heavy period, and endometriosis-related gastrointestinal symptoms along with this dyspareunia, painful sex. Those three cardinal symptoms is a result of the inflammatory situation that, uh, that occurs in, in pelvis. So I'm not sure how else I can define endometriosis. Other no, than- I
0: think, yeah, no, I think that's perfect. And I love what you said about in the beginning that it is not just the cells growing outside the the uterus, because it is, you're right. The inflammation is such a big piece of it and it isn't discussed very much. And if it is discussed, it's not giving the context in the way that you explained, which is so critical. And I must say, when you talked about the patients in the burn unit, I didn't know that background about you. So thank you for sharing that. Because usually doctors who are the last line of defense, as I call them, the doctors you go to when no one can help like you, usually have something like that in their life that triggers them to be incredibly passionate about solving the, the problem.
1: This is also critical. I am, I'm passionate about women's issues politically, as much as people may have different opinions, well, as people talk about us in different <laughs> ways, but certainly it, it comes to our upbringing, our maternal uh, relationship with our mothers, mm-hmm. And everything. But in my, in my thing, besides my relationship with my mother, we're not going to get personal. One day, maybe I will tell more, but it's not needed. But the bottom line, in my, again, in wherever I, I was trained in my medical school and residency program, we see a lot of uh, young girls at that time, we're talking about late, late 70s. Abortion issue and very, very young like, girls were were brought into our hospital center for septic abortion. These are abortion illegally done in villages or corners that went south uh, and misty or sorry, And these girls, young, 13, 14, beautiful girls would come and they are raped because they became a sexual object and that, you know, cultural environment, whatever. And, uh, They failed to abort by the inexperienced uh, gynecologist or, you know, someone in the village, whatever. Most of them died, actually. And that was extremely touchy for me to, as a young physician, and couldn't believe how people would die at that young age, as a child almost, adolescent girl. The social impact of being woman and these early deaths that they faced uh, uh, had a great impact on me to go to OBGYN. And later, obviously, as I came to the United States, in my residency, there was a significant interest in pelvic pain. But then we started seeing, we named all those people, or treated them as STD. In other words, whoever came to the emergency room with pelvic pain, with periods, we, made, we put more shame on that woman, suggesting that doing all these, what are you doing? Well, we're doing GC with all these STD tests. What do you mean? Well, we got to do. Why? Well, you know, you, do, you may not know, but this is the almost protocol, but she doesn't understand the OBGYN protocol. She, you know, you basically made them feel like you have, they have slept with the rest of the world in the city there, you know, that type of. All shame-producing practices, which had no basis. I think that, that those are the elements in my upbringing. I think as I look back to my youth, I see those things more constantly coming coming back as my what really pushed me to this very un, untaken, uh, you know, the, the road that's traveled or yep. taken, you know, that kind of thing. Anyways, the, the bottom line is... Uh, these were the things that really drove me into that. So endometriosis the is, is then uh, in my practice later, I found out these women who had pain as, I, as we discovered laparoscopy, trying to look inside. I mean, I always believed in what they, the patient said. So if a patient, I'm an educated woman, when I started to practice in Park Slope, uh, New York, Brooklyn... There's quite a bit interesting intellect, you know, cerebral style, uh, very, very progressive woman. Even that those years in in Park Slope, New York, eight, 1985, I started practicing in New York City. I was really uh, influenced or affected with uh, how smart a woman was with bringing their their uh, their issues and uh, you know very open about their their issues and once we look and it's hard not to believe them and they say they are pimping and you give certain medicine and you look inside later and you see endo then you realize what you were taught was not true and that was really the calling and you it, you just attracted and you as you treat them as they feel better that you push forward and you do more and more and more uh, suddenly I found myself in this uh, land of very complicated cases. And uh, with my background of very heavy surgical background with vascular surgery, breast surgery, this, that, I was a surgically oriented guy. I mean, I basically went in, I, I took care of things. Then if you really follow, you know, microsurgery is the ultimate surgical precision you know, um, techniques you can get the best result. Today, the ophthalmologic surgeon, eye surgeons, and brain surgeon, and ultraplastic surgeon techniques are all based on microsurgical principles. In gynecology also at that time, uh, the most important aspect of fertility was treated by tubal surgery. So tubal surgery was done under microscope and we would go for every little capillary every little capillary. I mean, imagine once erythrocyte would would leak and you would, you would basically see vessels that can, you cannot identify with naked eye, and you would control that, and you would do operations like that. So when laparoscopy came, laparoscopy was a joke compared to microsurgery, but what laparoscopy did was, in microsurgery, we cut open everything and looked inside with a huge microscope inside. When laparoscopy came, we tried to sneak in with a small hole. So it became minimally invasive surgery, so the patient would go home the same day and things like that, even though it didn't give the same exact resolution of a microsurgery, it almost did, and everything you adapt from microsurgery to, to laparoscopic surgery became the norm of what is to be considered as the as the surgery of standard and gold principle of. And controlling bleeding and removing all the lesions without leaving any scar tissue behind is the ultimate, obviously the uh, purpose or the goal of endometrial surgery. I mean, you asked this question I couldn't spell out, but these microsurgery experience with my background, whatever draw me, all these things together really put me here today talking to you. And that's how the, the foundation really started. I thought this was this was a just cause. This was the right thing to do. And if we would succeed as a foundation to get this shame-producing uh, uh, symptom of, 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 or sharing condition, being able to talk about it and considering as a disease rather than a condition would make a big impact on the future of uh, how we can manage this uh, challenging disease. So that's how the foundation was started, like 12. Actually, the foundation we really formed about 2006, but we we couldn't really bring it to the attention of people. We couldn't bring it to public visibility.
0: Let's go into, you know, helping people understand. So I know that you focus on the surgery. And I guess, you know, question number one would be, does everyone need laparoscopic surgery?
1: Probably not. Okay. So first of all, not everyone who has endometriosis do not need laparoscopic surgery. Probably uh, patients who, whose pain are controlled by pain medication. First of all, the symptoms of endometriosis is, is also one of the symptoms is no symptom. Which was me. <laughs> okay, But the only symptom become, becomes fertility issues. Right. Uh, the prevalence of these patients we do not know but I think it is vast, incredibly large. And that's why we really do not know exact prevalence of endometriosis. We may know the incidence, which is during when you attempt to do things to to go inside for any surgical procedure, you see endometriosis, or when people have symptoms, you go in, you see this much of endometriosis. So that incidence is around 6 to 12%, maybe, somewhere around there. We don't know the exact of that either. But the real prevalence, we really don't know. It could be up to 40%. It could be 30%. It could be 25%. Because we do not know asymptomatic endometriosis, even though we have an idea there's a infer- infertile group. There's also some group, patients who get pregnant or some infertile patients never get doctor's attention. So there's that group over yeah. there in the corner. We have no idea who they are. You know, so... The bottom line is um, to come to your question. What was the question again? We really. Oh,
0: yeah, no, I was about what, whether or not the patients need surgery. And by the way, just to yeah. add to what you were saying, when I was at the conference um, in 2019, that was one of the things that struck me is, you know, because again, I only knew my case. And over time, I started learning more and more about endometriosis and, you know, just constantly hearing about the severe impact on women's lives. And I know people can't see us, um, they can only hear us, but I was definitely tearing up when you were giving the example of the burn patient because just the stories I hear of women, I mean, sometimes I feel guilty that I didn't have the pain and was able to get pregnant. And some women like surgery after surgery and they're still suffering you know, it's, it's, it's really tough. And it was clear at that conference that we just don't know how many people actually have it because you're right. Unless someone goes to get the surgery because there isn't a good diagnostic test. Actually, there is one I want to ask you about later, but at, you know, for all these years, there hasn't been a diagnostic test. And so unless someone got the surgery and, and the other thing too, I'd love for you to comment on is um, just back to quickly to the fertility piece is, you know, one of the things that, a lot of the reproductive endocrinologists have talked about is they don't really... Evidence shows that um, endometriosis doesn't necessarily impact fertility. And as a result, they tend to not necessarily feel the need to recommend laparoscopic surgery in most cases. I do think um, in the American Society for Reproductive Medicine findings, they do say if you have late stage that you should get the laparoscopic surgery. But a lot of the REI say, well, the data showed early on that it's not necess- necessary. So it's it's really interesting to see all these professionals disagreeing, which is why I wanted to bring you on, because I think women need to understand there is major disagreement the way doctors are trained, it's not enough, and we really have to fight. So I think just helping women understand all these things from your expertise is, is so important today.
1: Let, let me just, just clarify something. Who needs surgery? First yep. of all, it's important to underline the fact that I never tell anyone they need surgery. I want patients to tell me they want surgery. They are the one who lives with pain. They are the one who I am with them for 15 years to one-hour consult twice or three times prior, they decide to go forward. Uh, but it is their, the life that they, they live within, with their loved one, w- within that family they're from. If it's in, impacting on their daily functions, impacting the, to their happiness, impacting to their uh, uh, productivity uh, from school or to, to job, well, obviously something needs to be done. It's important that how they, their symptoms are so pronounced in some patients and they're made to believe it's normal is mind-blowing. And it comes with sometimes certain cultures imposes that. Those mother-daughter relationships are so crucial. And sometimes the type of ambitious personality of the, some women uh, really they have a way of blocking their symptoms to while their their disease are uh, really so extensive that they have nowhere they're pinned against the wall and then they say let's have let me have surgery but i think that's why awareness is important if woman recognizes certain symptoms of endometriosis what is known as like what we know as IBS. Let me just clarify. When it comes to endometriosis, IBS is BS. It's the biggest BS. Many women sucked into that concept of IBS, not realizing or not being recognized that their symptoms flaring up with periods never brought to attention of anyone. So any symptom of IBS, I call this Argus okay endometriosis related bowel symptoms all right which which are they constipation, diarrhea, cramp bloating, gas you name it those those group of symptoms if they are flaring up with period and they're progressively getting worse' it's almost almost diagnostic clinically presumptive diagnostic signs from the symptoms that you can say that this is mostly endometriosis because Awareness of symptoms we're talking, awareness of some painful periods that are gradually getting worse and not responding to non-steroidal pain medication. Let's not get to narcotics, non-steroidal pain medication. Pain during deep intimacy with deep penetration, deep contact progressively or later showing up in, in symptom chronology and this bowel symptoms popping out, or from the get-go, is three cardinal elements of endometriosis uh, symptoms that we need to make public and doctors aware. And these are not easy subject, confidential, pain, uh, shame-producing <laughs> uh, issues that people don't want to bring, bring up. You know, they, so even doctors are preconditioned for that. They don't really ask the question. They're blocked and they're not taught. They're not taught. Uh, they're not, you know, they will never learn after medical school. They only practice what they learn. Many doctors. Right. That's right. And I have to be, one more thing I remembered, why I think this was, I was driven to this. I don't say this most often, but in, I, could sh- I should really confess that I learned what period was very late in my life. We, did, we were in my culture where I was raised, it wasn't discussed. Even a girlfriend of mine would, would say that, that she would be having period maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we were maybe doctors, this, that, I was, we were supposed, to, I was supposed to be, as a man, obviously, we read in medical school what period was. But I didn't know what that means, really. I read it from the book. It's a, learning it from the book is different than... Learning at what period is later for a woman. No, am I, absolutely. Am I, in other words, I, 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 there is a comparison I make. A lot of researchers, a lot of people who talk about endometriosis have no idea about real endometriosis is. They have never seen many of them research. I have never seen an endopatient in a clinic setting. The way the disease are brought to doctors' attention, the way the woman verbalized their pain and what is seen in the OR that shows in the pathology and those processes, how they, those things really link together, have, they have no idea. And trust me, this is a, this is a, such a serious stuff because when you read endo literature, everybody is repeating themselves. Right. It's good. They call it, they call it science. It's good science based on logic and references, but, Everything is repetitive. Everything is basically playing with words, and it scores academically, but uh, not necessarily. That's why we're all confused. We're not anywhere yet. It's been 100 years since Samson (laughs) described this disease. Trust me, what Samson has said, there's a lot of things we haven't really understood why he said it, and many of things from cancer to peritoneal disease, he said it. Right. He said it right then. Still, we're <laughs> discussing whether Samson was right or not. You know, I, I,
0: I, I have mean, seen that Samson
1: <laughs> did not have genes. Is gene studies. Samson did not have all these biomarkers or billions of proteins to go after to diagnose endometriosis. Samson was going under microscope and seeing this and bringing the logical things together and interesting. That's one of piece of the history.
0: Let's help the women figure out what what they can
1: do. And I think, you know... So awareness, I think we were at awareness. Yep. Awareness mm-hmm. is the key. Early diagnosis and awareness. That's why I, in a meeting in Croatia in 1993, I was with Lona Hamelshoi, the, the president of Endometriosis Organization, right? World Endometriosis Society, used to be the secretary. I mean, I, we brought this concept of... Uh, I mean, I, I said that in a meeting How early diagnosis is the best prevention of and detection is the is the only way to to halt the disease and to move forward. I think and only with awareness you can bring that early diagnosis and and prevention issue. Right. And and metriosis is really, really a disease you can diagnose early and you can prevent the disease jump from one stage to another and you really can prevent a lot of every bad things that happens to endometriosis patients, whether they lead infertility or hysterectomy or losing an organ or bowel obstruction. Many of these things could possibly very well prevent it, knowing from my example of my patient population.
0: So let's go to some of these, I guess, concrete things. So let's just run down a list. So one is, okay, Try is prevention... Um, always getting surgery. Like for example, you know, you take someone like me who was asymptomatic, endometriosis was never brought up. I'm well-educated. I've been in the biopharmaceutical industry. I am a chemistry major. I didn't really know anything about endometriosis until much, much later in even my fertility journey, which was in my mid to late thirties. And now obviously with social media, there's a lot more awareness. But again, if you don't know to go on social media about endo, you may not find it. So how does someone know like get diagnosed? Because right now, again, the diagnosis is the laparoscopic surgery. And if someone is in their early stages, then it's harder to find out through an in-office exam, which even in those cases endometriosis is missed. So how can someone get diagnosed early? Are these the patients who have that severe pain at a young age? And, you know, they should have the right to fight for the right treatment? Like who are these patients you can get early?
1: Well, well first of all, probably uh, right now speaking. I mean, time is changing, so that's true. Many g- girls know their p- mother's history. First of all, if there is in the family history of uh, history, his mother has endometriosis or aunt or sister or someone, mm-hmm. so there is a very high chance that you may be in that pool. So that's one part. Even though there's no symptoms one has to bear in mind they they have they need to that part of awareness number 1 and symptoms many times uh, woman, if women we teach women that certain symptoms of even painful period with a little bit of everything that i mentioned before it doesn't have to be very severe but if they're dancing together they're all three of them are around but if they're not sexually active, significant bowel symptoms with painful period and laterality, one side, this, even though they are normalized, so-called normalcy is being pushed by doctor or or their, um, even mother, or uh, don't worry, I have it too, don't worry, it's going to be. But self-awareness is, is a key. They don't have to be very severe. So we need, we could really recognize certain things without panicking. I mean, you know, and... And uh, that, that one, we're talking about the symptomatic group right now. And uh, how can a woman, a woman know? I mean, awareness is, is becoming another you know, serious part of education. So that's why in foundation, we started this high school education to young girls and boys too. Because a man can recognize things in, in a relationship that woman may not even want to bring. bring you know this uh, so it, because endo affects not only women they're everybody around them so uh symptoms can be recognized I and mean, in in doctor's perspective if you don't need a laparoscopy to call somebody with very high certainty they have endometriosis uh, in my population out of 100 cases i do I don't have more than two patients, three patients a year. That's one out of 100 If I, in my population that I go in and don't see any single endometriosis. Okay. Wow. However, there are type of endometriosis that in some women, it is massive. In some women, it's one or two lesions. So let's roll the tape back. It's easy to diagnose endometriosis by uh, when they have image findings, like on sonogram, you see the cyst, or MRI, you see bowel nodules, or da-da-da. That's, that's what, why they say, refer to the doctors, when they say 50% endometriosis, they're talking about endometrioma when there is cyst, all right? Endometrioma is an end stage of endometriosis. All right? When the ovary gets a cyst, chocolate cyst. It's already, the thing has been cooking there for years. Peritoneal image is how it starts. And for that, there's no biomarker. For that, there's no image studies. When you look, everything normal. So you're complaining about pain, lady, but everything is negative. Sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. Maybe it's in your, you know, you're making it up. Are you having, you know, that type of thing. So that thing really comes from that. However... If you really ask the right questions to that lady about their, their period uh, synchronology or their uh, period and their symptomatology of, that comes along with the period, if you're asked the right question, the answers will start popping out. And she, most of the time, they have been imposed as normal things for that woman. They think she, they assume it's normal. It's normal to have pain with periods. It's not normal to have pain with periods. I mean, anything more than one day and doesn't respond. Second day pain, third day pain is not normal. Pain should subside after the flow starts. When the flow starts, the pain should also go down. And if the pain is continuing after the flow starts and staying and lateralizing, right side, left side, ooh, that means something. you got to ask the question in a very fragmented microscopic format. The pain, all right? After the period, is the pain still are, are there, all right? All, how is the bleeding? How bad is the bleeding? Tampon plus tampon or very minimal? Tampon tam, plus tampon means a lot, and those women have significant pain. So where is the pain? So you get, is it uterine pain or out-of-uterus pain? Uterine pain is crampy midline i mean it's it's kind of you know women know what central pain is they know it's there in general i mean but right. when the pain is on the side that means this is the same pain after the period starts pain still continues
0: fem power health is pleased to partner with the upcoming femtech and consumer innovation summit the summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health. Having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders, join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there.
1: A pain that continues. Also, we have pain with ovulation. Why? Because if there's endo around, ovulation is very painful and it's lateral. It's one side consistently. That's, that shows that there's something there. And also the presence of GI symptoms, like nauseousness, like general bloat, like endobelly they describe, right? The patients say, it I feel bloated. I feel terrible. I feel, you know, and, they, and they, all those things with GI. GI is a terrible feeling with GI symptoms. So that is all endo-related symptomatology. So a doctor, if they are aware I'm talking through you to all these GI doctors, particularly, because they really get these patients. And they are the least informed people on endometriosis. And you know what? When doctors, GYN doctor doesn't know or doesn't have the courage to push forward to a diagnosis and they start sending to the patient at the wrong path. It's like you're directing a train instead of going to Washington. Suddenly you change the um, the switch to shelter, the shelter, the patient ends up in Nevada, in Las Vegas. That, right. that kind of thing. And never comes back for many, many years. Yeah. After 40 endoscopies, this and that, they still think they have this condition, that condition. Anyway, so, so awareness uh, from the doctor's angle, these things, you don't need a invasive laparoscopic surgery to have an idea, strong suspicion, strong presumptive diagnosis of endometriosis. The real scientific diagnosis and the real in other words evidence of the crime or the pathology is when you see it under microscope not even laparoscopy the real evidence is under microscope but that's a process though that's that yeah. comes still it comes a part of the good quality surgery right so and if the surgery is done minimally invasive it, why the right people it's easy for me to say because I'm opinionated a little bit because I'm a surgeon. It's easy for me to say, but so be it, you know, for all the harm that can come with uses, if you're doing in the right place with an experienced team, experienced group, who knows, and then complication rates are less really, I mean, it's like sticking a needle to get blood in a way with the, today's instruments. So it has to be done in that orchestral uh, mentality. Everybody plays the right tone and and, and note, and the instrument together with that harmoniously, the result is fantastic. And,
0: And just to add to what you're saying, for those who may not fully understand, so endometriosis can grow in a lot of parts of the body, and just going to And correct me in in how I'm saying this, but, you know, because it could go in the bowel, et cetera, like OBGYNs aren't necessarily trained in all of these different parts of the body to do the surgery and you want to make sure the patient is safe. So once they do the laparoscopy, because you may not always know where the endometriosis is growing until you're in, it's important to have available these other surgeons just in case they're needed, which I know is tough to say for someone who doesn't live in a city like New York where that's easy to get. Um, but the reality is, it's important. And I hope that people who are listening to Dr. Setchkin can see like how hard and complicated this disease is. And it's worth doing the surgery right should the surgery be needed. Right? You have a point. Okay, so if these women do have it, they're symptomatic, like I'm actually thinking of a girl in high school, I remember we were in history class, and she was literally keeling over in fetal position next to her desk. And every time she got her period, that's what would happen. And I've always wanted to contact her and say like, not not obviously to like pride, but more just curiosity. Like, I'm so curious if you were ever diagnosed with endo, because I'm sure that's what it was. I mean, I remember this. Um, That was in high school. Yeah. So you knew about
1: endo in high school.
0: No, I'm saying I'm thinking back to high school. Like that's how much I remember her painful periods. That's
1: why (laughs) the education in high school, bringing this concept there is so important. As a matter of fact, I was talking at UN, to a woman group in UN, one French journalist came to me, she pointed like this her finger, I think you should also consider not during adolescence after they have their, you should teach girls before they have period that these reproductive concept of what is normal and abnormal should be because these girls know it already. Yep. So we are behind. I mean, you don't know how uh, aware they are. I know. So as far as surgery, so if this woman, if
0: young women have symptoms or whatever their age, you were saying like doing things early um, is important. So you know, I've I've read so much about all these things you can do with your diet and you know removing toxins from your daily life are really really helpful with managing the inflammation. I mean, is that like at what point? does surgery play more of an important role? Like, is it as simple as if someone is in earlier stages and not as much pain and they start managing it through diet and other things and their symptoms subside, that's enough? Um, Is it always that surgery is needed? And then if the surgery is there and if it's the right surgeon can endo come back and then yeah, and then I'm going to get to hysterectomies next. But like, what is that path
1: to? But before before that, so sure. So awareness brought to to diagnoses a woman may have and the highly. But right. before that, though, I think with the right education and and this uh, by like this support system that that pushes for all non-surgical management techniques from diet exercise and understanding inflammation and it's it's and the toxin and i mean inflammation and toxins are similar concepts actually right inflammation is internal toxins right inflammatory molecules are toxins not friendly material that comes out and doesn't that systemic effect of endometriosis that's fatigue that is not feeling right that's headache that's you name it, that's that inflammation, the effect of inflammation, either direct circuit from the lesion to your brain through spine or, uh, or, or GI or parasympathetic autonomic system or from the molecules that directly goes to your blood and affect the way you feel, that's systemic effect. So toxins are something that you ingest from outside and makes you feel lousy and da 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 So overall, before surgery, if that balanced issue with diet, exercise, and other support measures are formatted, I mean, the right, you know, I, I, I like to uh, underline the, the, the value of exercise because estrogens. there's cut estrogens. Oestrogen and adrenaline are related in a way that exercise, you can really eliminate excess oestrogen. In other words... The endometriosis is, is estrogen-sensitive tissue. Okay, so exercise itself is a, such a regulatory effect on the overall estrogen is metabolized and organ uh, effect. Whether it's your the way you feel, the way you your uterus uh, responds. So those elements are part of the success of surgery when the surgery is decided. Surgery ethically should ethically surgery should be decided by the patient without suggestion, however, certain things should be laid to the patient very honestly and transparently. If a patient comes to a doctor with these symptoms, and the doctor checks and she jumps, there's, even though there's no cyst, there's no severe tenderness or any tenderness, point tenderness versus this, I think no matter what you do with those symptoms and and with this finding, which is the signs, Nothing will get rid of that endo way, even though you may take Lupron, the most powerful menopause drug, or, or, or ELISA birth. They may subside the symptoms, but it may not. So people can live with those symptoms with like birth control pills. Excellent. Excellent for a while. I mean, if they can manage the symptoms with it, even though it doesn't get rid of endometriosis, I mean, people will live a normal life and it can change. So you may not need surgery. But when the decision comes, the pain medication and birth control pill don't help and symptoms are still pronounced. When the surgery is necessary or in case of infertility, then like you were saying, the right surgery, what is the right surgery, who does the right surgery, what needs to be done right is a different different thing. So I think right now we came to that level, right? In yep. our conversation. We don't need to, hysterectomy is the far end of it, but we'll come to that. Yes. yes. So... Picking the surgeon.
0: (laughs) So, I um, actually just uh, by the time this gets published, it'll have been um, a while and I'll probably have more, but um, I finally published the endometriosis information page. And one of the things I was trying to add on there is like some sort of a tool to find surgeons, and it doesn't exist. And I think I've read and heard you speak that maybe there's like, I think the max number you've ever reported is 200 surgeons in the world who know how to do this. I think I've even seen smaller numbers at, at 100. First, how does a woman know who the right surgeon is, given there's no database? And by the way, um, there are databases, but from my very long journey in women's health, I would say that those databases aren't enough, just given what I know about endo and women's health. So how does a woman know who to go to?
1: Well, I, th- I think that's the, the biggest challenge. Um, First of all, let me clarify. OBGYNs are not trained as, as true pelvic surgeons, even though they are the most proximal doctors to do pelvic surgery. But in their four years of training, they are with all these focus on uh, medical, legal, exposure in hospital systems and, and emphasis on obstetrics. Half of the time, more than half of the th- three quarters of their time, even I would say more, even more, is focused on obstetrical aspect of OBGYN. And the rest of GYN care is medicines, you know, pelvic floor. I mean, the infections is that very little time is, is spent to teach them to, to teach uh, surgical techniques and good surgery. So for that OBGYN doesn't mean, a, even though they may do laparoscopy, doing a laparoscopy doesn't mean that you're doing any major surgery. Leparoscopy is just looking inside. So patients should understand these. So if a doctor is really doing obstetrics in their practice and they're doing your endometriosis surgery, that's the biggest red flag. Okay. So don't do it, okay? okay? That's not the right person to do it. You can't, and, because, and on top of it, one really has to be honest about, and the patient have, should ask the right question. Hey, how many have you done last month? There are people who really do this quite frequently. There are people who don't do it frequently. And it's not easy to find these. But if you really want to find the right person, this is the second question. How many have you done last month, last year? And how many years have you been doing? And truthfully, who's, what is, who works with you? Not your, the doctors that you call. Do you have a setup? I mean, do you have a setup of, the, of a, from your room to your staff? Is this at all... Is a team, real team? That it's the endo is an extremely complex surgery, and simple. There's no simple endometriosis surgery. Every endo surgery is complex and difficult because you go there to remove as many lesions as possible. You think part of the inflammation. So the, the third thing is: is there a dedicated team with you? And who is your who's who's your other surgeon team? Who's the leader of that team? So, but I am. We have a sophisticated setup in where we are. We are in New York City, in Manhattan, one of the most prominent hospitals in the world. As you know, there's a series right now about yep. one so- <laughs> Netflix. So, and I see these guys. I see these guys every day. In, we operate together in their <laughs> next room, you know? So let me, I, I'm, I'm proud of that, to be honest with you, because. That's awesome. uh, new, but that's New York City, though. What is what's the net lady in uh, Nebraska going to do, or or things like that? So
0: I know. it's terrible. It's really it, terrible.
1: It, it is terrible. So, but the right question will lead to. It's important to have the first surgery. is very important. Yep. Extremely important, first surgery. And I think the, the next question is transparency. Would you take pictures or would you record my surgery? That's very important. If the surgeon is does not hesitate to do that, that's two thumbs up.
0: Two thumbs you know? down, you mean?
1: <laughs> What's that?
0: You mean two thumbs down, that they should move
1: on. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> or two thumbs up that it's a bad sign, right? <laughs> However you want to look at it. <laughs> well, in a way, if they, they want to record it, it's as good that they know yeah. that I record all my cases. Not that I because I know I'm not perfect. So if patient comes with, with two years later with pain, I my record even my own record that I dictated does not tell me everything. In my professional experience, I go back to the tape. Listen, let's be honest. We are living COVID time. Yep. But more important than COVID, this political thing that's going on with Black Lives Matter thing. You may say, "What's well, got to do with endometriosis?" I may say, "Just not." I'm not trying to say black endo matters that are trying to be cute to to public. But what is important here? If there were no video on that situation, I, I get goosebumps. There would be no Black Lives Matter thing going on. Let's be honest. That's true. You gotta have video for endo too. Yep. The video is the ultimate evidence. You cannot. No judgmental jury from judge for everything. Everybody is a judge. Yes. Everyone is Supreme Court judge. Because life does not wait. Life yep. is life matters and and we go, but life stays. And yes. the, the truth stays. So in that case, endo is is an important thing. You cannot be untruthful to a patient. You cannot go and and we see this. I mean people are giving ads as best, you know. I mean, which really based on not true things, you know, everybody try to, there are surgeons who represent themselves other than who they are really also. We right. think it is, you know, yeah. we don't know. So I think patients should have second opinion and, and uh, we need to get organized also to give them more empowerment to mm-hmm. express themselves and, and educate them. Absolutely. So, so videotaping is important and understanding the, what is being done? You know, like, what is excision? What's ablation? What's this, and what is... What how? What do you recommend? Lesion, how the lesions are removed. Well, of course, I, I am a, the gold platinum or the ultimate standard of endo is removing it. You cannot, like a video game, or you cannot go and try to shoot things inside and slam all these lesions back into the origin, deep, deeper even. And that's what ablation does? Ablation basically... Okay impales, impales with surfacely eliminating the visual visual element of it, okay impales the rest of the unknown portion deeper inside. In other words, with ablation, you don't know what is underneath what you're ablating. Because when you ablate, you color this the area almost normal looking tissue. Laser is so powerful, you understand? Right. It becomes white, but you don't know underneath that. With okay. ablation, especially laser, you cannot do go deep and they cannot use it around sensitive organs like big vessel arteries and like big leg vessels or, or right on the bowel, ureter. They okay. cannot encourage us to do it. So you cannot honestly say, if you're using laser, hey, I'm doing excision. You cannot say that. It will never be complete to the perfection criteria I have. But everybody has, see, every cook is different. In the end, there's a good uh, food there, but everybody does differently. See, there's, there is going to be different from A surgeon to B surgeon. And I have opinions on that. But in general, though, these principle of clarity or transparency and truthfulness to the patient is important. But the patient has to dig that too. The patient has to ask that. If you don't ask the right question, you're not going to get the right answer. And you will know the opportunity whether someone is answering you truthfully or not. Many patients, as they learn and talk in their own talk groups and da-da-da, they really know. I mean, you, can, yes. you can't fool anyone today, in, especially in city atmosphere when you're, if you're educated. Okay. That's very true.
0: With the surgery, one of the things that's also fascinated me is repeat surgery. So in what, like, does it happen a lot? Is it based on the stage that you're in? Should it not happen if the surgery was done properly? Tell us more about getting the repeat surgery.
1: So there are two factors for repeat surgery. Okay. One is the patient. One is the doctor. One is the disease. That's
0: not what I wanted to hear.
1: (laughs) So, what? What what is? What is? uh, These are three factors. But one is the most important factor is not the patient. Is not the patient. One of the most important factor is not the disease. Also, trust me, it's the doctor. It's one of the most frequent cause for repeat surgery is incomplete surgery. I will summarize. You want a short answer? That's it. Incomplete okay. surgery. Unrecognized or recognized but not treated due to the surgeon limitation and left and never mentioned aspect of, of the surgery. This could be peritoneal disease, this could be ovarian surgery, this could be deep endometriosis surgery, this could be hysterectomy, this could be chest surgery. But if you don't if you leave tissue behind, the patient will come back. You leave it behind a big, big chunk, the patient will come immediately. Also, but then Let's be honest. On the other hand, there not every pain does not mean recurrence of pain does not mean endo is back either. Let me
0: play devil's advocate. So, since we don't know why endometriosis begins, how do we know that if you do the surgery and take all of it out, it still can't come back anyways?
1: I can tell you, I know this much. Endometriosis never comes back in the area it is removed. I am talking from my own. Very self critical personality, and for my own observation, I have gone to many times. I mean, maybe I operate one and between one and 12, one and ten, one and 15. That ranges from year to year. But out of those patients, I go back and look. Okay, they come to me, and I go back wherever I remove the endo. Most of the time, I never see as much endo as I saw. If I get even 20. Suspected areas, or very few of them, as part. But what is prominent in those patients? There's fibrosis, there's scar tissue formation, and overall, that perception of scar tissue causing pain may evoke the same circuits of pain. The way you per After all, we have when I said it's patient, it is patient also. I mean, in the end is the patient that feels it, yeah. and pain is very personal and cerebral. Okay. pain is perceived up here. So okay. there's central component of the pain that is perceived as endo also. I call that sometimes without being misunderstood. I may introduce first time in your program, but we could even write an article. There's central <laughs> pain, but there's also phantom endo. Okay. In the absence of finding so much endo in someone, that the same person going in and finding no endo could be also characterize a phantom endo or central pain, which has a lot of other components to it. We are not going to get into this, but central pain is really associated with serious heavy pain medications, uh, physiology, and that there's publications on that. Okay. Let's keep away from that.
0: Okay. (laughs) So I know we could talk for um, days. You mentioned before about asking doctors how many surgeries they've done. A good endometriosis surgeon or one of the experts, how many would they do in a given day or year? What is a reasonable amount? Because I have no idea. Well,
1: I think expertise, expert concept of expert is we, we've looked in this in the last decade. It's been defined as at least 10,000 hours of focus on one subject or dealing with it. That is, is true. Is, is somewhat defines expertness. So that's one. How many of these, it's not the number, only, only the, the variety and the skill level. I mean, the question has to be very, very straight. Doctor, okay. it's deep endo, it's my rectum. You went in, you got into rectum. What do you do? My answer is you put it together the way it's supposed to put together. Who does this? This endosurgeon should do it. If you're calling someone else to do it, that person has nothing to do it. That's where the trouble starts. Okay. Because many times... You don't have a team. The doctor who comes in to fix things that for a deep endo doesn't know how to do things right and the complications starts from. That's why endo surgery gets a lot of bed rep and the doctors right. are afraid to do it. You okay. gotta fix your holes. Okay. If you and endo has no mercy to any organ, it will go through it, you gotta fix bladder, and you know what? The patient has to know about it, but truthfully, recovery is fantastic. I mean, there's no not no issue on that. Yeah. When it is repaired, so it's the same thing as C-section repair. It's the same. Anything that you wound, you close. It's the same thing. Yeah. But endosurgeon surgery has this aspect, which is suturing, technique-wise, which makes one endosurgeon different than the others.
0: Okay. So then, what about the hysterectomy? I have to say, just given everything that I've, you know, really been digging deep into for the past decade, I um, every time I hear of a hysterectomy. I just want to cry because I think at the 2019 Endo conference, one of the doctors said there was a 21-year-old girl who had a hysterectomy. And I will tell you, most of that conference I was in the back sobbing my eyes out because I just could not believe. The more I got to hear these doctors talking about the disease, it was it's really troublesome. But anyway, or troubling, but uh, you know, when does a woman need a hysterectomy? Are there cases where they get them and they shouldn't have had them? I mean, this just breaks my heart and I really want women to know before they make such a hard decision.
1: I, I think this is, this is a, the heart of the ethics of endometriosis practice, where doctors feel that they can do anything which they believe or whatever writes in the text and they could justify, move ahead and do it. And uh, I am collecting these cases hysterectomy on young women that comes to me so far especially it's practiced in certain geographic uh, zip codes (laughs) in the in the country i mean i can say that let's not get it i don't want to expose that geographic code but i have it in my files unfortunately these doctors are in some big facebook groups they are one of the prominent doctors in those groups and it's hard to say we can't really Ethically, though, it is very concerning. And uh, I mean, having a one woman, 20 surgeries until the age of 20 and the 20 surgery, last 10 is done by robotically by the same surgeon, by the same surgeon. And then having hysterectomy is done or ovaries being removed in the end or one woman because of the recommendation of one group taken from, let's say, from Boston or New York to someone else and getting hysterectomy done at the age of 19 is synonymous to any crime you can imagine. I don't want to name it. It gives me tears. I know. I'm I'm so concerned. And we are really, we're writing an article about this ethics of endometriosis surgery, really. Standards have to be defined. And I think patients who practice removal of organs and too many repetitive surgeries, uh, we have to agree among us what the standards are. In the learning process, I could understand because the patients, do, the empathy that you may have to patients make, make you some, do some repeat surgeries and that's, that's a different thing, but removing organs is, is yeah. a complete something else.
0: I mean, again, I know you said in the beginning and the theme has been, it's the woman's choice, but when is a hysterectomy from a medical perspective, the right choice?
1: First, yeah, besides women's choice of uh, requesting, patients re- requ- may request. That is true. Some that's do, true. yes. Some, some request, okay? Out of sexual preference, out of personal feeling about their periods, even for birth control, with risk involved and with the right person, that's a different thing. But medically, in endometriosis, hysterectomy is indicated when there is, first of all, massive adhesions, around the uterus. So in other words, every time uterus contracts, theoretically, it pulls on every other organ. And no matter what you do, as long as the uterus is there, that is going to happen. So that's one. Massive, massive, extensive adhesions, scar tissue. The second is adenomyosis, when endometriosis tissue invades into the uterine muscle diffusely. When there is como, you know, compounding pathology, what are they? Let's say fibroid uterus, Multiple fibroids, 20, 30 with endometriosis. You know, that's, that's something. You, you can't really save that uterus effectively. When there's other issues with uh, the endometrial, like hyperplasia, this, that, obviously there's other indications of compounding. But the trick is, hysterectomy is not necessarily removing the ovaries. Hysterectomy itself also not adequate. Only itself alone, naked, is an incomplete procedure. For endometriosis too, because endometriosis disease is outside the uterus. So you got to go outside the uterus and clean the mess and the mud out there to call it endometriosis related hysterectomy. Anything short of cleaning the, the endo around is not the right treatment. So okay. I want to just add that too. Medical indications are mostly it's adenomyosis and fibroids. Besides that, obviously there could be Multiple polyp, you know, familial uh, other diseases that can compound the indication. Okay. But there has to be visible problem.
0: You know, I guess, I mean, we've, you know, a lot of the things that I wanted to ask you, we've, we've spoken about it. So I guess maybe just going back, so I know in the beginning we talked about diagnosis. I, d- I did want to at least just get your thoughts on there's a, a test out there, it's Receptiva DX, and they basically take. A sample of your uterus, uterine lining, and they test for the BCL6. And the way they describe it is if it's positive, it's basically testing for inflammation, and it's more for women who are struggling with fertility and miscarriages. And if you test positive, then it, it's not saying you have endo, but it says you likely do. Whereas if you test negative, You don't have to be concerned, but it's much more around miscarriages and fertility. And just given, you know, you work so much with, with women and and obviously you're an endo expert. I just wanted to get your take just so women have an idea from different, you know, experts on what to think about when it comes to something like this. Cause I think it's so valuable to finally have a diagnostic tool to provide information that doesn't necessarily require multi-thousand dollar
1: surgeries. Well, which I'm not
0: minimizing, by the way. I'm just saying, like, it's uh, good to have options.
1: Well, uh, well, I, I think the uh, BCL-6 coming to as a diagnostic tool or guiding tool to this very enigmatic picture that we have is a bliss right now because in my I can only tell... I mean, of course, we know what BCL-6 is. It's an oncogene protein, basically, for it's a B lymphocyte-based antigen which is equal to, defines the progesterone resistance. And many of these patients who have miscarriage, they have endometrial bed is not soft enough. They don't receive and host the coming embryo conception, enough solid bed to implant. So what happens is the same tissue, because endometriosis is originally endometrial-related tissue, same tissue. We have an article coming on that. It's the same, really, clonally. It's the endometriosis and endometrium clonally similar tissues. So these tissues are also DCL-6 presence also is, is a semi-diagnostic for endometriosis. In the case of particularly the group of silent endometriosis, it is, not a, it is not a big deal for people who have symptoms. Right. But for people who miscarry, their symptoms are so minimal or normalized; uh, they don't see as a symptom. But repetitive miscarriages, these women, and in my practice, I've been seeing them vastly lately. We're getting a lot of referrals with high BCL6 or over 1.5, 1.7, coming in with one or even one, one or two miscarriages or even without, without miscarriage history, but some sign of endo, they may elect to go for.
0: Yep. diagnosis and
1: elimination of the inflammation, because what that means could mean many, many failed IVFs and lost time for uh, for the right treatment and having a baby. Very valuable in my okay. opinion.
0: I um, actually met the uh, CEO and he was so gracious. Uh, I drilled him because I wanted to see if this was true. And I just asked him so many questions. He was so gracious. And I'm like, I actually think there's something to this. And so I, I wanted to just ask your, your thoughts as well, just so people know, but thank
1: you. But um, progesterone, progesterone this, is, this is the first molecule that's tied up to progesterone resistance. We knew about progesterone resistance for a while now, for maybe right. five, six years, we've been talking about progesterone resistance, progesterone, but there was no molecule in the endometrium there was. Bruce Lessey is a friend of ours. Okay. He's a very interesting guy and he's the person behind this this advancement and we do congratulate him. I think in my opinion, it's an opening a door for so many women that will help them. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome.
0: Well, thank you. I seriously could go on for longer with questions, but I just really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and appreciate what you did for me and and my son. He is a great, great little kid. And yes. (laughs) So last question for you, what is your greatest hope? When it comes to endometriosis, wow,
1: this is a big one. Um, <laughs> well, well I, I think it is. Dif- realistically, it will be difficult to find. the... It's a multifactorial. Very deep genetic implications are there, but realistically, I think getting some sort of standardized approach to to the best treatment techniques in a methodical way that applies to women. And with early diagnosis before the disease jump from a stage in a peritoneal phase into a organ attacking phase, you cannot eliminate estrogen. Estrogen is part of life. This disease will be part of us, part of the modern woman's life. There will not be marry birthing at the age of 17, 18, 15. That the, the, the nature have designed things, things are changed now. The birthing pregnancies are pushed to thirties later in that in life. So as long as there are periods and the will be around, and that non-pregnant uterus will always speak itself in different ways. And this disease, in that case, if we are aware, if if we can find way of early diagnosis and having tests that, would, that like BCL6. BRCL-6. In a similar way, uh, with early awakening and the public awareness, if we can manage this disease without uh, surgery, finding that particular molecule that will not cut the effect of the estrogen will still be around, but only affect the endometrium, but not promote the endometriosis of inside, it will be a true bliss. And I think... People are working on this, though. Yes. People are working on it, and we know who they are. But overall, at this stage, if people have unsuccessful surgeries, if their pain level are, are persisting after procedures, this and that, I don't think they should lose hope that disease is not curable and things like that. Right. You know, that subject has to be re- digged again and reformatted with good endometriosis is highly treatable disease with the right approach. And, and many of these women do get pregnant, have a normal life, and even pain-free pain and pain-tolerable life is ahead of them, enough to forget about endometriosis and not even talk about it afterwards. Many have children, my <laughs> life moves on. Thank God you're talking about it. Yes.
0: No, I, I definitely have empathy and Thank you for doing everything you do. And I appreciate um, the Zoom time after a long day and uh, just wishing you the best and just appreciate your passion and everything you're doing for women. And um, I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Check out our website at fempower-health.com, which supports your desire to learn important information, prepare for your seven-minute doctor appointments, and share your knowledge and experiences. If you like what we discussed in today's FemPower Health podcast, subscribe, rate, and review, and be sure to tell your friends. The more we work together, the bigger the impact we can make on women's health. And remember, the information we discussed is not to be substituted as medical advice. Always go to a trained professional of your choosing. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about Fempower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. social media algorithms. ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter your insights inspire our conversations and a quick note the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider it's not medical advice always consult with your doctor for health decisions and remember the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys and it's not an endorsement by fempower health here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.